This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film show and podcast that takes a look at current films and connects them to films from years gone by. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I am an arts writer and multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're going to take a look at the mysterious and wondrous new science fiction horror thriller epic from Jordan Peele, simply called Nope. And we're also going to examine its tenuous connection to the summer of 1972, 50 years ago this very summer, and we'll be getting into it right after this. So Stephen here on Lensmere Ears, we are talking about Nope, which is, for me, it's kind of the summer blockbuster that I've been waiting for. I think it's I think it's one of the best things that we've had to see this summer uh, at the cinemas. And when I put it that way, it's like we're forced to go and see it. Not at all. But it's the one I've enjoyed probably more than almost any other feature film that's especially on the broad scale. I mean, this is a this is a fairly big budget movie, but it's clearly directed by an auteur, someone who's really starting to get a sense of his his um, his voice as a as a filmmaker. The last three movies he's made have been very interesting. Uh, Jordan Peele has you know obviously out of the gate with Get Out was a huge success, uh, and then Us, which I liked a little bit less, but I still found fascinating. But now we have Nope, which uh, I think I've I like almost as much as Get Out, and I think is a an extraordinary film. Now we're also going to be talking on this episode about the films of the summer of 1972, and we're we'll explain as we go how we go we. Leave <laughs> I mean, a real leap from Nope back 50 years. But uh, but yeah, it'll all come clear as we as we go forward through the show. Well, it's interesting because Nope, you know, certainly does have a lot of nods to films of the past. Uh, you know, it's I mean, it's a very fresh and interesting take on and spoiler alert, it's about aliens or an alien uh, intelligence or presence. I don't even know if that's really a spoiler because it's kind of right there. It's in the right trailer. there in the trailer. I know, but everybody's being very sensitive about not ruining it for anyone. And and uh, we're gonna. I guess we should just flat out say that we'll probably ruin it for you if you haven't seen <laughs> Nope yet. Yeah. And if you haven't seen Nope yet, well, what what's your problem? Because yeah. it is probably the best film of the summer so far. It's been uh, out for a month too. Yeah. Uh, I exactly. mean, I have seen a couple of things since then that I really liked, like Emily the Criminal and and Bodies 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 I thought was terrific. But this is one of those it has the scale of a almost like a Spielberg kind of. I mean, it's you talked about ways in which it's indebted to films of the past. This is definitely of the close encounters of the third kind style of of thriller suspense horror you know which is not a gory kind although there is a little bit of gore um it's more of you know that fear of the unknown yeah it's 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 like close encounters meets jaws basically <laughs> yeah like, yeah sure <laughs> what, what if the shark was in the sky mm-hmm. <laughs> basically it's Indeed. Kind, of, kind of an easy way to look at it but there there is a certain dynamic that uh sort of takes the best out of out of those films and combines them and and uh and yet not in a like super obvious way. I mean, a fact from the alien presence that, you know, automatically kind of tie and, and attempting to figure it out and communicate with it, if possible, uh, does kind of tie it into Close Encounters of the Third Kind almost automatically. But but I feel like Peel has done something really original here with uh, 
with his you know thriller and 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 the way he kind of builds up our suspense of it takes a while to figure out you know whether or not this presence is is even uh, malicious or not and and just that suspense alone is is uh is a key part of the film that that really pays off in dividends yeah absolutely and you know it also reminds me a little bit of m night Shyamalan's better work uh but you know Let's let's talk a little bit about what it's about. Set set it up for people. Yeah. This is it's largely set in a desert valley in California, sort of driving distance from Hollywood, where the Haywood Horse Ranch is located in this in this valley, along with the neighboring Western Family Fun Park, Jupiter's Claim. The Haywood family have been horse wranglers to Hollywood for generations, but with the untimely death of the patriarch Otis, played by Keith David. Uh, Otis Jr., also known as O.J., played by Daniel Kilua, has taken over, but business is not so good. Now, uh, O.J.'s sister, Emerald, played by Kiki Palmer, she's got her own business going on, but is supposed to be still prioritizing the family business, not, uh, and, and, you know, O.J. has got some problems with how, how much support she's offering to the business. Um, yeah, so it looks like they may have to be, they may be forced to sell the ranch. Uh, so, but weird things have been going on in the valley, stuff falling from the sky and horses being, well, abducted. Uh, so the guy who runs the, the Western Park next door, Jupiter, Jupiter's Claim, his name is Ricky Jupe Park, played by Stephen Yuen. He has noticed these strange, uh, you know, things happening. Now, he's a former child actor who years ago worked on a sitcom where a chimpanzee went crazy and mauled the human actors on set. Now, we see this regular flashback in his sort of like, you know, clearly he's still sort of traumatized by it. Now, why he was spared by the chimpanzee is one of the things we in the audience have to kind of piece together. Uh, in the intervening years, Ricky may not have understood what the lesson of that <laughs> that event was, but I think that OJ might have a better sense because he just, he works with animals and all of this it relates to what this strange events are happening. These things are that are coming from the the, the sky, um, and how not to provoke it, and what what it feels like to feel under the thumb of of a more powerful oppressive force. Uh, and I, you know, and all of that. I think that's about as much as I want to say in terms of what the plot is about. Um, you know, Kaluuya is terrific here, as he is. You know, so good in. In, in, you know, in every film I've seen him since Get Out. He plays very, sort of like a classic Western hero, while Kiki Palmer gets to be both funny and sort of the audience surrogate to some degree. He says a lot of things that we might be feeling. There's a great supporting cast, classic 90s bad guy, Michael Wincott shows up. I always remember him in The Crow yes. as, the, as the man with the, he's the growliest voice in Hollywood. He gets to play sort of a nice role as a crusty cinematographer named Antlers Holst. And Brandon Pereira is Angel, the IT guy who helps out with the Haywoods' efforts to film the weird stuff going on at the ranch, which may give them a chance to save their homestead if they're able to get actual footage. Um, so there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, it's sure, it's an alien horror suspense thriller. It's also a neo-Western a neo to many ways. It has things to say about Hollywood and the way that we love spectacle. Um, Jordan Peele has gone on the record saying how much he feels like this is really, that's what it's kind of at its core it's about. But it's also Peele's, you know, his, in the core of his storytelling over three films has been about race and about America's relationship white people to, to black people and white people to to anyone who is a, a visible minority. So all of that is in this, if you want to unpack it. 
Yeah, it's it really uh, takes this whole look at how we experience entertainment in general and the frequently exploitative nature of show business, which is is a huge theme uh, running through this film. That the fact that it has so many layers to oh. it is is what uh, you know is you know I mean, people are going back to see it again because there's there's so much to unpack in this film and it's the sort of thing you think about for for hours and hours after you've seen it trying to just you know glean what you can from from this story and and from all the layers of meaning that Peel has put into it I mean he, I I can imagine his flowchart uh, at you know in his you know in his study where he writes the screenplays and just making sure that all the dots are connected. And I think he does it so much better here than, than in us, which I mean, us was a great thriller and it, but it obviously was trying to say a lot of other things that weren't necessarily so clear, uh, where here, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to either get Peel's message or, you know, some conglomeration of the ideas that he's putting on the table in this film. Yeah. It's a lot clearer, I think, than us was where I liked a lot of us. I liked a a lot of the, um, you know, the especially the second act where it's the doppelgangers are are fighting with our our kind of main family and and they're trying to survive this attack. But um, the reasons for why these doppelgangers exist and how they they're survived over time and all of that just seemed pretty. My my like. I mean, my brain works and pays a lot of attention to plot, uh, maybe more than it should, uh, because clearly I understand character is the thing that really drives a story, and that plot didn't quite hold together. Whereas this one, I felt everything was in tune. And as you say, um, there is the experience of of watching the film in the cinema, but there are also the experience of sitting with it after the fact. And, yeah. and, and I can't think of another movie this year that had uh, has such a uh, impact that really... Um, warrants a conversation after the fact and talking about it and kind of puzzling it out. And that's why you're right. I think people are going back to see it a second time or a third time to better understand what those messages are. All of these things that are, you know, I mentioned they're going on and I didn't mention the, the relationship between human beings and animals and how animals are being exploited for Hollywood's needs too. I mean, that's, you know, and all of this stuff works on metaf- as on the level of metaphor as well. So there's there's a lot to discuss here. And we haven't even gotten into the importance of Corey Hart's sunglasses at night. <laughs> <laughs> or Gowan's Strange Animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Big wh- on the CanCon. Why the CanCon? This is a question I haven't I haven't heard posed to uh, to Jordan Peele yet, and I'm wondering maybe uh, maybe what, someone should. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it ties back into Halifax. We were here with uh, Chelsea Peretti was making Spinster, and I guess he was here for a week or so. Maybe he was listening to Canadian rock radio. I don't know. And heard some songs that he liked that he hadn't heard on American radio. I don't know. I mad those songs, though. I mean, those, I don't know about Strange Animals. Sunglasses but at Night was, was a global hit. Oh, yeah. It was a hit in Australia. I mean, Jordana yeah. knows it, obviously. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those songs. You know, sometimes we don't remember how big some of our stars actually got. I mean, aside from Brian Adams, of course, who was a global superstar but some of those other tracks you know really really did strike a chord in in kind of, in more maybe in a more of a novelty way because i've i've heard a lot of crash test dummies jokes coming from the states lately and i just thought that was kind of kind of a weird thing to hear but but uh yeah some of our acts uh are are better known than we even realize yeah yeah it's true um so yeah this is a really fascinating film and i was i will definitely it will 
break into my top 10 of the year for sure. If you haven't seen Nope, go and check it out while it's still in cinema because it's also a striking visual experience. I was so impressed with the way it's shot. It looks great. Did you see it in IMAX? I didn't, know, but I I wish I had. I wish I had, I think it played for about a week in IMAX or something like that. I'm hoping that maybe they'll bring it back uh, in that format. Uh, Maybe it'll be a lull in blockbuster land and we'll get another chance to see it because it was shot, I think, with 65 millimeter film cameras. And then, and then, of course, it actually has a nod to that with Michael Wincott and his hand-cranked uh, <laughs> IMAX camera, which is just a, an amazing thing to see, you know, that he has this solution to one of the problems. And in fact, that, that that's part of the joy of the film is seeing how um, Antler's Holst, uh, Wincott's cinematographer character, and, and OJ, um, you know, are clue into how this flying entity, this... Uh, it's not a UFO anymore. It's a, was it UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, mm-hmm. I believe is, is what uh, the official term now, apparently. Yeah. And um, to try to distance itself from like, like little green men. Exactly, yeah. So, because uh, it can apply to more than just um, flying objects, apparently. But uh, the, the way they, they kind of ascertain how this thing behaves and what its goals are and and how they can possibly get around some of the uh, barriers it puts up in terms of you know killing the power of anything in its vicinity and and uh, you know electronic devices and that kind of thing and, and having to really kind of think in a in a in a retro luddite kind of way uh-huh. to kind of come up with a plan and uh, and it it's it still didn't that the plan ex- itself as it unfolds it's a little hard to suss out you have to kind of really observe what they're doing and and uh and kind of figure it out but it 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 does it does make sense in the long run and and uh you know you have to kind of stick with it but uh it's it's pretty ingenious yeah absolutely yeah please please do go and see it uh, we we both urge you if you're listening and haven't seen try it try and get a chance to see nope um now uh, here's the connection tissue between uh, Nope and 1972 on the wall of the ranch. Uh, You will notice, I think it's pretty clear, that there is a poster of a film called Buck and the Preacher. Now, Buck and the Preacher has been mentioned on here on Lends Me Your Ears previously when we did our... um, our Poitier, uh, Sidney Poitier, look back at his career. We didn't actually talk about the film uh, at great length, but it, we mentioned it in passing because it was the first film that he directed or co-directed, I guess. And it was from 1972. It's a Western with a largely African-American cast. So it makes sense that Buck and the Preacher would be a poster up on the, the ranch and Nope, given that they are uh, horse wranglers. There's a lot of horses in Buck and the Preacher. Uh, and... Uh, and yeah, so Buck and the Preacher came out in 72. So we thought, well, we should see this, especially since we missed it the last time around with our Poitier uh, uh, conversation. And um, and then we uh, that led us to other films from 72. Stephen, I'll let you talk about that in the second segment yes. about why it is that, uh, that also another connection to 72. But uh, aside from the round number of it being 50 years. But uh, Buck and the Preacher, which I had never seen, is a real pleasure, and I was so glad that we have a chance to catch up with it. It's co-directed by Poitier and Joseph Sargent, and I wouldn't go so far to say it as it is a romp, but it is a lot of fun. Uh, Poitier has definitely seen his 
you know, Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns as he decided to essay his own genre picture. But it still, it looks good. It has a lot of great sort of western elements, and uh, it's a real pleasure to see. So it's about a group of migrating former slaves from Louisiana. They're on a wagon train headed across the Old West after the Civil War looking for land to call their own, you know, the sort of 40 acres and a mule thing. Um, they're led by Buck, played by Poitier, and uh, who, he's with Ruth, played by Ruby D. The former slave owners and plantation owners back in the South have hired a group of white men, led by Cameron Mitchell, to encourage, <laughs> encourage, I say that in quotes, the former slaves to return to Louisiana. Their workforce, you know, the, all their workforce have abandoned the cotton fields, and, you know, they, they figured, well, paying them a pittance is better than nothing, and so their whole industry is, is threatened. So they're basically trying to threaten these former slaves and try to get them to come back. Um, and that's what's the, the, the main conflict there. Now, Buck crosses paths with a reverend with, a, with terrible teeth, and that's, he's played by Harry Belafonte. He's a fast talker, certainly a con man. He keeps a sidearm in his Bible. And, of course, the, first, the two don't get along, but it doesn't take them long to arrange a kind of partnership fueled by the common interest and eventually money that comes up. Now, not all the white folks are bad, but most of them are, and it's fascinating to see this kind of amazing West uh, got to be a milestone for American cinema right at the sort of the end of the civil rights era talk telling this story you know I thought it was really something yeah it does flip a lot of the the western myths on on their head and uh, it, it is a landmark in that way and I guess it, the poster that we see in nope I guess is an implication that either um, OJ's um, dad or maybe his granddad uh, you know was a horse wrangler and stunt writer on the film mm. and uh the other poster in the office is another sydney poitier film an earlier western called duel at diablo uh which uh, had sydney poitier and uh and james garner and is not a great western uh you know i, I watched it uh, a little while ago and I th james garner seems fairly low-key compared to some of his other film performances some of the james garner charm is not necessarily in full evidence but but it you know it's a decent western and Poche is, is great in kind of action mode, uh, and it serves him well here as well. Uh, there's there's a lot going on in this film. It feels like kind of the Western version of the cop buddy picture. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, for sure. You know, that's kind of the dynamic, you know, with, with, with Buck and the Preacher kind of being at odds for most of the film until the Preacher has a change of heart and, you know, looks into his own soul and, and decides to do the right thing. Um and you kind of know that's where it's where it's heading, but he, you know, he is trying to play both sides of the fence for a long time in the film, and and that is kind of uh, kind of the joy in Belafonte's performance. He's so and he's so good, and Belafonte doesn't get enough credit as an actor a lot of the time. I mean, most people remember him for being a singer and, and a humanitarian, and 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 you know a lot of the good work that he did. But he's in some really great films. He's in some fine film noir titles early in his career, and then. You know, here he he plays a character that's not necessarily likable, and he's uh, I mean he's he's a very handsome man who kind of goes out of his way to make himself look a little less handsome, with the teeth and the the bad hair and the mustache. He, he looks pretty grimy here, and it's uh, and he pulls it off uh, with this wonderful character and just the clash between him and Buck, who's who's like a man of his word and a man of action, a man of deeds, and. Uh, and the the difference between the two of them is 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 what makes uh, the film a big joy, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, it the film also should be credited for having 
Well, I think, I mean, you can tell me maybe, Stephen, since your your knowledge of, of film, especially around this era, is probably a lot deeper than mine, but, but it has one of the most sensitive depictions of Native Americans that I've ever seen in a film of this vintage. Uh, it has them speaking their own language and outlining the struggles and connections between African Americans and the indigenous population. There's a great scene late in the running where Buck is has gone to the, the Native Americans to ask for help and ask for weapons and bullets to help with fighting off these um, these white people who want to stop their wagon train and uh, they're explained very specifically they're like well you didn't we weren't always isn't you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend that's the theory well that wasn't always the case you know that that uh, black people worked with white people to to help clear and uh, you know uh, fight the uh, the Native Americans, and uh, that's what this particular chief is reminding him of, and 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 of course reminding the audience of the history. Uh, and I thought that was so smart, and you know it, it the drama here is is really well told, and and I just yeah I was just surprised to see it in a film from fifty years ago. Yeah, that is one of the delights of the film, the way that it expresses that sort of sense of of unity and and. You know, you wonder how much of that is is in um, is in reality a truth, but uh, you know there is certainly evidence of it in the past. In fact, some of that kind of plays out in the the recent uh, TV series Dark Winds, which I just wrapped up. Uh, it was on AMC, and that some of that uh, element comes into play there as well. Even though it's set in that's actually set in 1972, I believe. But um, uh, you know that aspect of it. I mean, there were a huge percentage of the cowboys that were working the range or, you know, settling the West were in fact black. And it wasn't, uh, you know, especially after the, the civil war and, and, um, and emancipation. And, and that was almost never reflected in Westerns. You know, occasionally you get a Woody Strode, uh, role in a John Ford Western or something like that, but it was certainly not a reflection of, uh, the reality of history. And it, it's, it's great to see that turned around here. <laughs> Welcome back to part two of Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, we started off talking about Nope, and we talked about its connection in 1972, uh, 50 years ago this very summer, in the form of Buck and the Preacher, which is a film that was playing in Halifax uh, theaters, or at least uh, at least one theater in town uh, 50 years ago, um, I think probably in June or July. And uh, yeah, the, the reason why that connection was so interesting was that I, I have this... Uh, tendency to go back and look at the microfilm, uh, the newspaper microfilm, the old movie ads, to see what kind of film culture existed uh, in in Halifax back in the past. And 1972, I was born in 1967, and 72 is kind of, I was five years old, and I was, I was becoming aware of, of films and, and, you know, going to, I was obviously going to Disney movies. I wasn't going to see The Godfather, which was playing, uh, you know, 50 years ago here in Halifax. It was at the Paramount Theater uh, on Barrington Street for a about like six or seven weeks. It was there for a long time. Uh, but of course, this is before the multiplex. This is when, you know, movie theaters, uh, you know, had to, a film had to make an impression in a very short time because, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't playing in a 16 screen facility. It was playing in a single screen theater. And if you wanted to see something, you had to see it in the, the couple of weeks that it was playing before it moved on. And, uh, and the cycle was fairly, uh, Fairly rapid. It wouldn't. You couldn't count on it hanging around uh, your multiplex for 
for a month or two. Or and showing up on another platform because there were there no were, other yeah. platforms other than like Second Run or, or I guess, you know, um, drive-ins or something. Maybe. Yeah, the, and the drive-ins would only bring back certain types of movies, more exploitation fare or what have you. And, uh, you know, occasionally they would show up on TV. Uh, the, the, you know, the, all the networks had a, a weekend, you know, the, the ABC Sunday Night Movie was a big one. And you might see a, a recent notable feature film show up there but of course edited you know for profanity nudity and violence plus uh, commercials uh, and so you know seeing them in truncated form was not nearly as appealing as seeing them on the big screen uh, uncut and uh, you know and with an audience which which counts towards a lot with some of these films you know especially a comedy uh, like one we'll be talking about shortly uh, to see that with a, with a crowd all everybody all laughing at once that really augments the experience but uh, so we're going to be looking at films from 1972 specifically the summer of 1972 and uh, you know some of the things that, that um, we won't be getting to but but just an example of the of, of things that we could have looked at. There were things like Shaft's big score, the second film in the black action uh, trilogy uh, that has since been remade twice and was also a TV series in the 1970s. That actually played at Scotia Square uh, in uh, in downtown Halifax. And that was kind of the prestige theater in a lot of ways. It was a big, um, big theater in the Scotia Square shopping center. At one point it had a 70 millimeter uh, projector and screen and was uh, was a great way to see some things like Wrath of Khan or the latest James Bond movie, especially when they were shown in that format. Uh, Bucket the Preacher played at the Casino Theater, which used to be on Gottagen Street, which is now the Theater Lofts, uh, I guess, condo building. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy was playing uh, this summer, 50 years ago, at the Highland Theater, which used to be down by the Armdale Roundabout. Um, and uh, and there's also stuff at the drive-ins. Halifax had, uh, now 50 years ago, it had two drive-ins. There was the Enfield drive-in, which uh, was out by the big stop uh, out there past the airport. And uh, there was also the Bay Road drive-in, which was uh, in Hubley, I believe. So so out towards Peggy's Cove, I guess, if you're taking uh, taking that road or out towards Tantallon area. And, and, and the sites of both of those uh, drive-ins are still vacant lots. You can actually find them on Google Maps and see where they were. And eventually we got a triple screen drive-in on Carney Lake Road, uh, but that came along a bit later in the late 70s. So the drive-in would show stuff like, in Enfield, they showed a double feature of Shaft and then the Elvis movie Speedway, which is a bit of a whiplash kind of double bill. Or they'd show like uh, biker movies, Proud Riders and Outlaw Riders. There was, a, there was a real trend towards these cheaply made motorcycle gang movies in the late 60s and into the early 70s, and they all seemed to play here. For some reason, there was... And I don't know if it's because of this market or just how the distribution worked, but they were, it seemed like uh, at some point, you know, either at one drive-in or another, there'd be a biker movie playing or possibly at the Vogue Theater, which was um, uh, an old first run house on Gottagen and became the Cove Theater. And then now it's the headquarters of global television. The building is still there, but it's now a TV studio. Uh, and the Vogue uh, at this point, 50 years ago, was kind of into sort of sexy exploitation fare, basically. So like 50 years ago uh, in July, they were showing um, Finders Keepers, Lovers Weepers, a Russ Meyer film with the Swedish uh, sex drama I, a Woman. <laughs> or, or Swedish Fly Girls with Dagmar's Hot Pants, which was actually a very popular double bill. It showed up a lot in, in various theaters and drive-ins uh, around that time. So uh, so there was a, a pretty pretty varied film 
uh, environment. And each each theater had its own kind of flavor. Uh, the Capitol Theater was still in business, although not for a whole lot longer. Um, at the base of Spring Garden Road, it was it was the big movie palace that looked like a Tudor castle inside, and it was the the big first run movie house, uh, and 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 it was always getting the big kind of famous players, Paramount uh, or Disney films, and uh, and you kind of had to pick and choose. You had to specifically go to whatever theater was playing the film you wanted to see, and you and the movie ads would tell you where to go. So it's every every. Uh, Every week, I kind of go through the listings. I, I, I can scan the microfilm, and I post it on my Twitter account, uh, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E, and I put it up on Facebook. And it's fun. People comment. Uh, some people actually comment on remembering seeing certain films or double bills or, or certain theaters or going to the drive-in. Uh, you know, Sadly, I never got to go to the drive-in in Halifax uh, as a kid. Uh, by the time I got a license, they were all closed down. <laughs> so, oh, too bad. Too bad. Um, yeah, but you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of interesting films. I had a quick look at the list too, Stephen. Films like The Carrie Treatment with James Coburn. Sounds kind of intriguing. A medical thriller. Yeah, it's not uh, bad. I see TCM show it every now and again. Yeah. Um, Puppet on a Chain, a sci-fi called The Groundster Conspiracy, um, Richard Benjamin in The Steagall, uh, Sophia Loren as a woman who loves uh, charcuterie in Lady Liberty, uh, a Russian historical drama, Nicholas and Alexandria, something called Fuzz, starring Burt Reynolds, Yul Brenner, and Raquel Welch, uh, the Douglas Trumbo scripted and directed Johnny Got His Gun. I mean, it just, yes, some of these... Familiar to fans of Metallica. Indeed, yeah. For from the, the use in the one video. One video, exactly. Uh, Junior Bonner with Steve McQueen. That's a Sam Peckinpah film. Like, it just, some of these films, of course, I had he- I have heard of, though I may not have seen, but it's just amazing to me that the film culture at the time, so much of it has completely vanished from the culture. And we talk about movies all the time on the show, but they're just, even to us, I think, these are many of these. I mean, you you might be a little different, Stephen, with your encyclopedic memory. But for me, I was just I can't believe how many of these movies I had never heard of or and or just had never had a chance to see. Um, which takes us, I guess, nicely, I think, to our 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 next film to talk about, which is Skyjacked, directed by John Gillerman, who also directed The Towering Inferno, King Kong, and Death on the Nile, three movies I have seen before, um, written, by, rich, written by Stanley R. Greenberg, who wrote Soylent Green. So these are, are filmmakers who, you know, who have had quite a lot of success in the 70s, though Skyjacked completely off my radar. Um, it's a solid airline disaster movie, and I guess it came out of the jet trails of Airport, uh, you know, which I actually, but I think I like Skyjack more than Airport. It's, to, it's told on a smaller scale, a less starry cast, but somehow more intimate and more fun. Charlton Heston is the pilot and captain who smokes a pipe in the cockpit, and everyone's very reverent to his, you know, knowledge and understanding. He's certainly the sort of paternal figure here. Uh, you've got James Brolin, as a Vietnam vet who's strung a little too tight, Roosevelt Greer as the cellist sitting next to him, Walter Pigeon as the senator, and Nicholas Hammond as the senator's son, <laughs> uh, with Susan Day and Marriott Hartley uh, also on board. Uh, the Hartley plays a pregnant lady who orders a double Bloody Mary on the rocks. Uh, we've also gotten smaller roles, Claude Aikens, John Hillerman, and a dubbed John Fielder, which is really weird. Um, but yeah, it's basically about a plane hijacking. And what's interesting is for a long time, we don't know who the hijacker is. They, the hijacker keeps leaving messages for the pilot and the crew, uh, telling them they should shift the, the, uh, the plane from uh, Minneapolis to Anchorage. Uh, and the, you know, the footage, the exterior plane footage looks pretty good. The camera moves around 
in a way I thought was interesting within the space. And uh, there's a lot of suspense, but not much score, which I also sort of appreciated. You know, so many movies from this era are just slathered with score in a way to make us feel more, you know, something. And I just, sometimes <laughs> that's a lot less effective than I think they thought it was. Um, what did you make of Skyjack, Stephen? Well, this is this is one of those films that I always see it in the IMDb because it's got cast members that are in so many other different things. And uh, it... Uh, I, th- I think it was one of those films that used to be on TV a lot in the 70s and 80s and then kind of vanished from the from the scene. And, and even though it stars Charlton Heston, you know, at his peak, you know, Soylent Green, I Am Legend, kind of Planet of the Apes, tough guy uh, phase, it, it certainly has faded. I, oh, in, in Omega, Omega Man. And I, Omega Man, yes. Omega Not Man. I, based on I Am Legend. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so <laughs> I feel like, like, why isn't this film better known? And... It did eventually show up on DVD. Uh, Warner Brothers put it out as part of a camp cult classic series of films, uh, which maybe lowered my expectations for this movie. That 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 uh, maybe it was not a great uh, you know airborne thriller. Uh, and it is campy. I mean, it, it is interesting to to watch it in comparison to where airline security is now. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like things happen in. Uh, aboard this plane that obviously would never happen now people you know getting things on board that wouldn't have made it past the the checkpoint and and certainly the vision of a pilot smoking his pipe in the cockpit um uh, it's just uh, it's just a little mind-blowing you know let alone just passengers smoking and having a having a you know a, a, a lounge on, on board the plane and all that kind of stuff but i thought it did, it did what it does pretty well and and Aspects of it are a bit campy. I mean, the, the fact that James Brolin keeps having these visions of a of a big ceremony where he's being congratulated for his heroism, and then they show it once, and it's all the American generals, and uh, and then they play off of that later in the film. They have a, an alternate version of of this vision of his that is, uh, it's kind of hilarious, and but also you know kind of sad at the same time, and. You know, it, it gives it gives his character a little more depth than than it might have. And uh, at some point, like I got this weird feeling that he just resembled Christian Bale, like <laughs> an unhinged Christian Bale. And if, at some point, you kind of saw it too, I think. Uh, over yeah, the course I of the absolutely film. did. Now, I think when I see James Brolin as a young man, I often think of his son Josh because they do look a lot alike. But uh, no, you're right. Uh, the the Christian Bale thing was actually pretty shocking how much uh, they looked alike. But but there is there is some value in, in the actual storyline of, of the film, but there is also a camp aspect in terms of how things have changed on planes. And, you know, the, as you pointed out, <laughs> Marriott Hartley, the pregnant uh, mother who's the first time we meet her, she wants a double Bloody Mary on the rocks. And and just, yeah. uh, just the things that, that you know, have, have changed. It's just interesting to see how much has changed since 1972 yeah. just in this one film. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, we should also mention Pocket Money. This is a film that, uh, I mean, if we're bringing it back to Nope, that O.J.'s dad probably would have worked on as a host, horse wrangler. It's directed by Stuart Rosenberg, who also directed Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke and a movie called WUSA, which I've actually never seen, but I'm curious about. Um, apparently, Wayne Rogers of MASH fame was also in those two as well, and he's here as is Newman. Um, there is something very early 70s about this movie. There's, It's in the Carol King song that gets played over and over yes. on the soundtrack. It's also very much a neo-Western written by Terrence, sorry, sorry Terry Malick, as he's credited <laughs> in the film. Um, and uh, it's a mismatched buddy comedy, uh, 
between Paul Newman's Jim and Lee Marvin's Leonard, sort of the difference between their characters is in their headgear. Uh, Paul Newman wears the whole movie a, a sweat-stained cowboy hat, while Lee Marvin is more fond of a Stetson. Uh, the crux of the story has hard luck Jim, who's broke, waiting for his cattle to come through quarantine. He's so broke that in the meantime, he takes a job with a shifty rancher, played by Struther Martin, who wants Jim to bring 20 heads of cattle up from Mexico. So Jim crosses the border, meets Lee Marvin in Mexico, and they put together this cattle drive. Um... You know, I wasn't altogether surprised to see Malik's name in the credits. There's a long time since I've watched a film that's so entirely disinterested in plot. Like, I just told you the plot, <laughs> that's but that's it. about it. That's get all cows, you get. bring them home. Get, yeah, that's it. Instead, it's just, you know, characters chatting with each other about various things. At a certain point, I have to admit, I, I walked away from the, the movie to go to the bathroom and brush my teeth. When I came back 10 minutes later, I was convinced that I didn't miss a single thing. Like, this is such a rambling, shaggy dog story. Rosenberg also directed The Pope of Greenwich Village. Did he? Which we have talked about on this show. Yeah, so, no, it's a great movie. Um, you know, certainly a skilled director, but I think here he just kind of let Newman and and Marvin do their thing. It's This is a film that I had never heard of until uh, it showed up and I bought a, a DVD box set called The Paul Newman Collection, um, which is a great collection of, of films like The Left-Handed Gun and The Young Philadelphians and, and you know stuff from early in his career, but also some later films like The Drowning Pool and The Macintosh Man, which is directed by John Huston. It's a pretty good thriller. Um, and Harper, of course, his uh, great 60s uh, detective film. And this was one of the films included in the in in the box. And I was like, how could I have never heard of a movie starring two of my favorite movie stars, Paul Newman and Lee Marvin, and it's a Western. And then I think it wasn't until I saw the credits I realized it was written by Terrence Malick, a guy who, you know, at the time had, had really only had like a handful of films to his name. He'd made two masterpieces in the 70s, the Days of Heaven and, and Badlands. And then he kind of came back with uh, Thin Red Line and, and The New World. And, and, and more lately, he's been, you know, making some very elliptical uh, philosophical films of varying degrees of quality, but but just the fact that all and Stuart Rosenberg, the director of Cool Hand Luke, which is you know one of one of Paul Newman's best performances, and and you know watching the film, I can see why it didn't catch an audience at the time. It, I can see why it got too. some pretty mixed reviews. <laughs> my but, my feelings about it are mixed as well. <laughs> but this was this is almost a genre unto itself in the seventies. I call it, we called it the Shaggy Dog movie because. You know, it's just you don't know where it's going. It's it's purely about character, and you just kind of watch it unfold without, um, you know, wondering you know which where the act divisions are or, or what the big finale is going to be or any of that kind of stuff. And there's a number of films like this from from that time. Uh, Scarecrow with Gene Hackman and Al Pacino is a great one. There's one called Slither with James Caan, uh, and and they all kind of follow the same kind of meandering trail. They 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 have these kind of drifting aimless characters uh, who kind of one thing after another happens to them and and they just kind of play out their line basically over the course of of 90 to 120 minutes. And uh, and this is this is no different. It may not be quite on the same tier as as Scarecrow or Slither, but I I enjoyed the interactions between Paul Newman and Lee Marvin, even though apparently they didn't really get along that well, uh, you know, behind the scenes. But but they have a, an interesting camaraderie and just knowing they're getting cheated at every turn that they have to fight and scrounge and, and really kind of knowing that they're just getting ripped off by everybody along the line as they try to get these cattle and then try to get them on a train and then try to get them out of quarantine and 
you know, people aren't holding up their end of the bargain. It's, you know, I've, I found it endlessly fascinating, but uh, obviously you're not <laughs> in the same boat. I No, I mean, I found it pretty dull for the most part. Like, I, I get that, that Newman and Marvin have, have really interesting chemistry because they are so different. I really enjoy... Uh, Lee Marvin on I love his I love his voice I could listen to that guy talk all day uh, and you know that he was 48 in this movie I mean he looks like he's about 68 he does look about the 60s you know I think his face really weathered he probably was a chain smoker um, he just has that kind of intense look about him but he's he's so he's so great in this and I I but I would recommend it only to completists of of Newman and Marvin because otherwise there's just not much going on here and I just found it really hard to stay focused on this film um so there it is um yeah um before we move on to our next segment Stephen, we should quickly uh, mention fiddler on the roof yes. which is one another one from 1972 i think actually it came out late 71 but maybe it only arrived here in 72 i think well yeah and then it won all it had like a limited release won a bunch of oscars and then then uh was playing this kind of road show engagements where these kind of specialized screenings and then it kind of i mean not every film opened in every theater all at once everywhere like they did like they do nowadays uh, certainly not the the major studio titles and so on and uh you know fiddler on the roof uh played for many many weeks at i believe the oxford theater on quinpool which is now a rock climbing gym which is some sort of crime against cinema for sure but um but it was a, a huge success uh, i mean it was a obviously was a big Tony winning musical on Broadway and had a big run in the West End in London. It was very successful there. And, you know, based on the, the Sholem Aleichem uh, folk tales about uh, the milkman Tevya in, um, in the Ukrainian Jewish village of Anatevka, uh, you know, a very sort of humble beginning for a very epic musical. It's, it's like three hours long. It has an intermission, but uh, it, uh, it really delves into the world of Anatevka and the many characters that inhabit the village. Uh, I mean, it's not just all about Tevya and his, you know, trying to marry off his daughters and his willful wife's plans to work with the matchmaker to, to, you know, get the the daughters married off and, and uh, and and then there's all these great songs that you know, if I were a rich man and sunrise sunset sunrise sunset tradition. Uh, it, it's uh, matchmaker matchmaker, which is uh, you know just a, a fun romp of a song and and. and and it really sweeps you along. I, it did not feel like three hours to me when I watched it. I was actually amazed. And it's also very poignant in, it, in that it's portraying the oppression of, of these Ukrainian Jews by the Russian Cossacks. And uh, the, the oppression of Ukrainians by Russians uh, does seem very uh, poignant and, and, and timely now. It's, it's, it's very, you know, it's very strange to watch this film in a way that makes it more profound than it would have been a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a huge hit at the time and deservedly so. Yeah, this is a film that I'd never seen, but, you know, I think my my parents and friends of my parents when I was growing up had the soundtrack, so it was something I heard a lot of the songs from it. So to watch it again and realize where the songs come from and how they are used in the story, I really, I was so impressed with this with this movie and this story. It's, it's really touching. It's very sad, um, but it's also lovely. And, I mean, there's a scene, a wedding scene, where 
None of the char- all the characters are singing, and they all have little solos and moments to themselves, but they aren't actually singing on screen. We just hear their voices as the camera focuses in on each person. Um, I thought that was a real, they're all holding ca- candles in the center of the town square. It, I just thought that was such an amazing uh, technique, and I really, like, I was just brought into the story so much. It's also funny in a sort of, you know, heartfelt sort of way and uh and there's a lot of humor and i kept thinking to myself in 1972 if if you were a, a like a waspy family and didn't know any jews in your community and you went to watch fiddler on the roof you would have learned a lot about jewish culture that you may not in jewish history that you may not have known i mean this must have been quite a uh, a powerful cultural force i think to to help people get to know what it was like at, at a time you know a much much earlier time and and all the music and everything is it's it's really just a joy hi i'm lindsey cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that you can find us on itunes and stitcher so come join us we would love to share our stories with you Okay, so uh, to wrap things up here on Lens Me Your Ears, on this uh, look at films from the summer of 1972, we're going to talk about What's Up, Doc. Now, this is was directed by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, the great Peter Bogdanovich, who has more recently passed away. Um, actually, I guess maybe it was last year, but, but you know, it's sad that he's not amongst us anymore. Um, it's got a script by the great Buck Henry with help from David Newman and Robert Benton. These are, uh, are pretty big names in Hollywood, and uh, they have come up with a go-for, no-holds-barred screwball farce of the sort that they simply do not make anymore. Yeah, I said it, and that's because it's true. Uh, Ryan O'Neill is Howard Bannister, a musicologist whose thesis is about Neanderthals who use rocks to make music. He's at a conference in San Francisco where he's up for a $20,000 award. He's arrived at the Bristol Hotel in San Fran with his fiancée, Eunice Burns, played by a wonderful Madeline Kahn in her first role. She's a little intense and uptight while he's profoundly absent-minded. She has a plaid weekend bag for her clothes, and he has a plaid bag for his rocks. In the middle of all this arrives Judy Maxwell, played by Barbara Streisand. She enters their lives... And it's a little hard to understand why exactly she does what she does at the beginning of this. She definitely wants to ingratiate herself with Howard, but why? Um, She's definitely interested in him. Uh, You know, she's funny and lovely and maybe a little crazy, and he's a complete schmo, and of course, they spark. Um, And then there's a woman on the hotel with a lot of jewels and two men chasing a lot of secret government files, and they have two more of these red plaid bags. And all of these folks are coincidentally on the same floor of the Bristol Hotel, and naturally people start stealing suitcases, including (laughs) the hotel detective. And within 20 minutes, I completely lost track of what bag was what and whose bag was who. And, of course, <laughs> I don't think it's – I don't know if you can keep track of No, it. you can't. You can't. <laughs> um, and it is a real blast. It is a very, you know, shiny, cheery, outrageous uh, comedy. 
uh, by the third act, it's become a chase scene giving Bullet a run for its money around the streets of San Francisco. At one point, the uh, Ryan O'Neill and Streisand, they go the wrong way down a one-way street. Uh, O'Neill says, this is a one-way street. Streisand says, I'm only going one way. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> the kind line. of great line. Uh, John Hillerman, who we mentioned earlier, he's also in this. Randy Quaid, a very young Randy Quaid. M. Emmett Walsh, Michael Murphy, and Dukes of Hazard's Sorrel Book all show up in supporting roles, uh, which is also fun to, like, you know, go, hey, there's a there's a really young M. Emmett Walsh who doesn't really look any different. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> or John Hillerman, for that matter. Yeah, seriously. And, and uh, uh, Liam Dunn, who was the... Uh He's in. He was a favorite character actor of Mel Brooks. He plays the. Uh, I think he plays the preacher in Blazing Saddles. He shows up here as a judge. Oh and, and, yes, and, yes, and yes. He just owns that that scene in the courtroom. That I won't say more about. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he is so good as as the put upon judge, uh, and and uh, you know for that makes that courtroom scene really sing as as a genius piece of comedy. You know, just when you think the film's maybe running out of steam, it just has that this other last bit of oomph in it but it doesn't run out of steam which is is amazing and and yeah it's it's paced like a as the title implies what's up doc it's paced like a warner brothers cartoon uh and and basically um babs uh barbara streisand as judy is bugs bunny like she's just this force of nature who you know like in a bugs bunny cartoon he just kind of shows up and then he interacts with an opera singer or a baseball player or whatever, and, or Yosemite Sam or Elmer Fudd, and then just proceeds to make their life a misery. Uh, and, and that's kind of the role she plays here. She's, uh-huh. she's just a catalyst, uh, you know, kind of this free spirit who, uh, you know, can work all these con angles in terms of like getting a hotel room and, and getting free room service and all this kind of stuff. Uh, sh- she's very clever and, and very wily. To, uh, to infer another Warner Brothers cartoon character. But, uh, you know, just the way that everything kind of rolls off her back is one of the treats of uh, of this film. And and, and you know, every time she crosses a street, there's a motor vehicle accident uh, <laughs> occurs. And, and it's it's just the timing of it all is just impeccable. It, it uh, If you're ever in a bad mood, this is definitely the film to, to throw on. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And she is just, I, I think we sometimes forget the potency of, Barbara Streisand as a movie star. She was so good in this. And in fact, I think she outshines her her co-lead, uh, Ryan O'Neill, in pretty much every scene that they're in. He just seems a little more dull and a little... I mean, of course, he's playing a character that's not very interesting, but but he just doesn't have any of he's her from sparkle. Iowa, isn't he? Yes, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, now, let's, before we, uh, we wrap this up altogether, let's talk a little bit about one more film. The Possession of Joel Delaney, the, another film that we plucked out of the list of movies that played in Halifax in 1972. Uh, directed by Waris Hussein, written by Matt Robinson and Irene Camp from a novel by Ramona Stewart. And uh, yeah, these are these are all people who have really interesting uh, Hollywood um, rap sheets. Uh, Stephen, where, where do we know <laughs> these people from? Well, it's, yeah, this, this film... Uh, this is because one of the reasons I do this show is that so I can see films I've always wanted to see. Uh, and, and sometimes we pick themes that allow us to pull in titles that, well, I've always meant to get to that. or I've always meant to get to that. Um, this is a film that has been kind of, I, I've, I've been aware of it because I'm a big Shirley MacLaine fan. I've seen it on her filmography. Uh, and, and it used to play on like local television in the seventies all the time, like on the, 
on Academy performance on CTV or midday matinee or whatever with a lot of stuff cut out of it, of course. But, uh, but I never actually saw it. And, uh, and I was curious about it, it had, because Shirley MacLaine, you know, in the early 70s, her career, I think, might have been on a bit of a slump at this point. But, uh, you know, she's, a, she's an interesting, fascinating actor. Not always great, but often great. And, uh, and this film is about, you know, it's a horror movie. It's about possession that came out before The Exorcist. So, it, you know, it wasn't cashing in on The Exorcist, although we surmised it might might have been cashing in on the book, The Exorcist, which was a big hit before the movie ever got made. But th- yeah, this this film comes from a screenplay uh, by Matt Robinson, who was Gordon on Sesame Street and the voice of the puppet, or the Muppet rather, Roosevelt Franklin. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but he was always writing screenplays and TV episodes on the side while he was doing Sesame Street. Uh, and uh, also uh, working with a, a screenwriter named uh, Grimes Grice in the credits, but actually uh, screenwriter Irene Camp, who wrote Paris Blues, which we talked about in our Sydney Poitier episode, and also The Beguiled, the uh, the Clint Eastwood uh, hmm. Civil War era thriller. So uh, definitely a screenwriter with with a good track record. Uh, and uh, and then directed by Waris Hussein, who's a British director. It's actually a British production, even though it's filmed largely uh, on New York City locations. It's uh, it, it it kind of has a British feel about it, and it's directed by Waris Hussein, who uh, may be best known as being, I think, the earliest director on episodes of Doctor Who in the 1960s. Uh, and he did have a brief uh, fling with uh, theatrical features in the late 60s and early 70s, before primarily going back to television in the UK. Uh, and uh, his probably his best film was a Melody, which is like a teen drama that starred. Um, the, the the two kids from Oliver, <laughs> Jack Wilde and uh, and the one who played Oliver, whose name is Casey Mark uh, something or other. Anyway, so that that was his that was kind of a big hit, and then he made this uh, immediately afterwards, and uh, and then a movie about Henry VIII, and that was kind of it for for his theatrical career. But it's such a weird conflagration of ideas and uh, and storylines, and it doesn't really quite work I, this is this is the be careful what you wish for aspect of it i always yeah. want to see this film and now that i've seen it i'm kind of thinking eh, maybe i would have been better off not seeing it it isn't great uh it's about a, the ritzy rich new yorkers uh you know as you mentioned uh shirley mclean we get snatches of their conversation at a party it's all pretty shallow privileged and petty and uh, she's a divorcee named nora benson her kids, uh, we get to know a little bit, and her Puerto Rican housekeeper, Veronica, who she bosses around without a lot of politeness or patience. And Joel of the title is paid, played by Perry King. He's Nora's brother, a bit younger, maybe kind of hunky, hard to say because everyone's hair is so terrible. Um, <laughs> now, Nora and Joel are very close, maybe even weirdly close. A lot of mutual hair drying and yes. hair brushing. Uh, Joel lives in the East Village in a tiny apartment, a walk-up, while Nora lives in a big, expensive flat. Uh, Joel is critical of Nora's upper crust attitudes and how uptight she is, and Nora's concerned about Joel living with all these poor people. So, but Joel ends up in the psychiatric hospital Bellevue for having attacked someone, and he's having kind of a psychotic break, and it turns out that it's more supernatural than that. I liked the sort of 1970s New York grit in this film. Uh, I like that King and McLean are both a little over the top, and this is kind of a melodrama. But I struggled with what the film is saying. There's this subversion going on. It's critical of Nora and the rich people, while it's also very critical of Joel's alternative lifestyle. And especially uh, weird in that it, it's sort of saying, you know, 
rich people should be more careful and more kind to their their um, Puerto Rican servants. But then it goes out of its way to show Puerto Ricans as exotic and trading on these primitivist motifs and stereotypes. So, yeah, it's I don't really know if it knows what it's saying. Uh, and then the final scenes are very exploitative and, and twisted. Um, it's all a little gross. And uh, I can't say that I would recommend the possession of Joel Delaney. No, even for a diehard Joe McLean fan, she kind of sleepwalks through a lot of this. So give it a pass. And so that brings us to a close on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears. Thank you so much for listening to us ramble on about films starting with Nope and ending in 1972. If you want to reach out to us, we are on Twitter as at Lends Me Your Ears, and we're also on Facebook. Now, Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. Yes, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E, where you might catch a glimpse of my 50 years ago movie ads. Also, I'm on Twitter under the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 o'clock. Um, and thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for making everything sound good. And uh, we will be talking about movies again with you very soon. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.